Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus, we're focusing on his life today. The rest of the sermon I will call him Ty. Uh, Ty, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you that for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. <clears throat> Let me give you the background of where we are in Paul when he was writing this particular letter. Paul had been in Rome under house arrest for two years. Let me explain house arrest in the Roman Empire today. Because we believe, quote, innocent until proven guilty. Unless you're charged with a crime where you're considered to be dangerous, uh, you can be put out on bail and have freedom until the day of your trial if you can afford the bail. Uh, in the Roman Empire, Paul was, had been charged, but he'd not been convicted and was pretty much in the category of a political prisoner. They did not have bail where you could be free, but they did allow you to have the privilege of something called house arrest. Now, it was still arrest because 24 hours a day he had a guard chained to him. But if you could pay for the house and pay for your food, then you didn't have to go to the Mamertine prison and be underground and be where you couldn't be reached. So he had a blessing that he had some freedom. Friends could go back and forth. And during this two-year period in Rome, waiting his call up from Nero to stand before him, he actually wrote four of the books of the New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and um, Philemon. So those are the four books that he wrote during this time. But we're looking at this particular book and this particular letter, let me tell you what caused him to write this letter. And it spurred him to actually write four letters at once. And I'll explain why of that. Paul had heard the church at Colossae had people claiming to be a new version of Christianity that were preaching a false gospel. And they were twisting the faith of these new Christians. He would never sit still when he heard that false teachers had come to town to try to disrupt the lives of people that, that he was responsible for. So he wrote a letter to fight against this cult called the, called the Gnostics. But since he was writing one letter, he said, I'm going to have to get some messengers to take it by hand. Let me write some others in the same area. There's a map here now before you. If you look at the bottom left hand, you'll see in bigger letters, Ephesus on the coast, that's the capital of what was the, the province of Asia. It would be Turkey today. So he decided, I'll also write a letter to Ephesus, and I'm grateful that he wrote that letter. It's full of great doctrine. He also wrote a letter to an individual in the church at Colossae, Philemon, but he also wrote a letter that we don't have, a letter to the Laodiceans. Can you see Colossae? If you go directly right, you'll see Laodicea, you'll see Colossae. And so he wrote a letter to both those churches. In fact, we'll read later on that he will say to them, when you get your letter, make sure it's read at the church at Laodicea. When Laodicea gets their letter, let them send it back and be read at your church. Now, here's a problem. We don't have the letter to the Laodiceans. And that's not the only letter of Paul that we don't have, because in the book of, quote, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 5, he says, now, now in my previous letter that I wrote to you, well, if he'd written a previous letter, it can't be the first letter. So I wish I could read Laodicea's letter, don't you? I wish I could read uh, the first letter that he wrote to Corinth. But for some reason in God's providence, he's decided these are the ones that needed to be preserved, and they're the ones that we have. Now, 
Let me talk to you about what he did in this particular letter. He was under house arrest. He dealt with the bad doctrine that they were hearing. But he also said, and I'm going to do two things, and I'll talk about one later on. He says, I'm going to send you greetings from people who are with me now that you know. And he lists eight people that basically say, by the way, Ty says howdy. <laughs> Anesmus says howdy. And he goes through the list and gives the greetings from people who are with him. Now what we're going to do is draw a sermon from the fact that there are Christians all around Paul. One of the blessings of being under house arrest is people can be there and be with Paul. They're not in, he's not in a dungeon. He can have friends around him. And God made sure that he had friends around him. Uh, Paul was awaiting trial. Barclay said this about it. He says, it's always dangerous to be a prisoner's friend. For it's easy to become involved in the same fate as a prisoner. It took courage for his friends to visit Paul in his imprisonment and to show that they were on the same side. Now, Ty is one of those who's with Paul. And by the way, Ty had been with him ever since the end of the third missionary journey. In Paul's third missionary journey, he had a pet project that really moved his soul. He wanted to raise a love offering from the Gentile churches to be brought to the Jewish church in Jerusalem to help them in their poverty. And one of the things that you do when you handle money is he said, if you're bringing me your money, send somebody with me that they can go and make, and so they can testify. He didn't put his hand in the pocket. He didn't steal any of it. So Ty was probably the one that was sent from Ephesus and he accompanied the money to Paul. And then he went with Paul and he was there when Paul got arrested. He stayed with Paul through two years of imprisonment at Caesarea by the sea. He was with Paul on the journey when he, his ship was wrecked. He'd been with Paul for two years in Rome, just staying there, putting his life aside so he could constantly be with Paul. That's the kind of friend you need, friend. So let me give you the sermon today. Today we're going to talk about the kind of people you want to be around because I want you to know this. God never intended any Christian to be a Lone Ranger. He wants you to be able to have people to surround you and encourage you. But today we're going to talk specifically about what kind of people do you want around you. So I'm going to give you four characteristics from Ty's life. Number one, we need people around us we find easy to love. We need people around us we find easy to love. He calls Ty in verse 7, our dearly loved brother. Now can we be honest? There are folks that are easier to love than others, aren't they? And so you want to make sure you've got people around you that are easy to love. Well, what makes somebody dearly loved? I thought through this, and I'll give you three characteristics. Number one, dearly loved people are those who give out love. They give out love. Luke 6, he says, given it will be given to you. I'm not going to read the whole verse, but that's a principle. If I give out love then love will come back. That's, what, that's how God has made this world. What you give, you receive. If you find somebody who's dearly loved, you can count on it. They're giving out love. Uh, I had a man come to me one time and said, Pastor, my wife is sure cold to me. So I asked him this question. I said, how you been to her lately? Well, I've been cold too. I said, well, why don't you try loving her and see what comes back? <laughs> and so a dearly loved person is someone who loves folks. A second characteristic of a dearly loved person, loved people stick close when times are hard. 
Loved people stick close when times are hard. Think of all that Ty has gone through because he stuck close to Paul. That's amazing that he would be there through trials, through imprisonment at Caesarea, through a boat ride. Now he's been there two years in Rome waiting for Nero to finally say, I'll see Paul. So that's the kind of person, somebody who will stand by you. Uh, People who dearly love are those who don't run away in tough times. They stick beside you and they don't leave you. But number three, and I can give this point as an almost retired person. All right, here we go. Love people are upbeat people. Love people are upbeat people. Can I tell you, this is just a fact. There are some people when you see them walk up to you, go, come on. I'm so grateful to have this person. I know that when I'm around them, we're going to be, I'm, a, I'm going to leave that person so refreshed and blessed. Paul talked about Philemon in the book of Philemon, that, that's next week's uh, subject. Uh, he said, you have refreshed the hearts of many brothers. And there's some people that you just get around them and you just feel encouraged and refreshed. And there's others you go, oh, no. Because you know by the time they leave, the very life of you is going to be sucked out. So you're a dearly loved person if you're one of those who refreshes people and you don't drain people. I always try to find stories to illustrate my point. So I've got a person that illustrates this point. Do you want, if you want to know how to be a dearly loved person, just be like Dave. I'm just telling you. I don't know. I don't know anybody more loved in this church. I don't know anybody. He's got all those characteristics. He gives out love. He's always there for you. He's upbeat. He's refreshing. When I came back in 2014, for some of you, I was returning. and you, when I, After the church voted, glad to have you back. Some of you came up and said, I haven't met you before, but I've heard about you. Glad to have you here now. And almost everybody that day when I was shaking hands said, now you're going to love Dave. You're going to love Dave. And I I could tell by the fear in their voice, they were saying, this is what they were actually saying, whatever you do, don't fire Dave. (laughs) we got to keep Dave. (laughs) And he's that refreshing type person. Number two, what kind of people do you need around you? We need people you can count on. We need people you can count on. Look how he's described. He's described as a faithful minister. Ty showed his love for Paul in actions. Uh, he was there standing by him. He was, there to, he was somebody you could look around and can count on him. Let me tell you one of the things he did. I'm gonna, uh, he wrote those four letters, and they had to be carried by hand. And, and he put his heart and soul into those letters. You don't just give somebody four parchments and say travel across the empire if you can't count on them to do the job. He said, I know that Ty and Onesimus will be faithful to this task that I'm given. I can count on them. They are dependable. Someone once said, the greatest ability is dependability. One of the commentaries we like to read, Justin and I, is Kent Hughes. And let me give you a quote from the commentary. There's greatness in the smallest things done for Christ. What would be the use of Paul's writing a letter if it did not get delivered? What would be the use of his towering thought in the opening chapters of Colossians and its compelling application if no one ever read it? And then there's the old saying, for the loss of a nail, you lose a horseshoe. For the loss of a horseshoe, you lose a horse. For the loss of a horse, you lose a soldier. 
For the loss of a soldier, you lose a battle. For the loss of a battle, you lose a kingdom. And then he goes on in his commentary and said, those who are so dependable in the background are so valuable. He said, can anyone name Charles Lindbergh's mechanic who worked on his plane? That person was an important person. And then he said, can anyone name the blocking back that blocked for Barry Sanders when he was running for the Detroit Lions, setting all the... We don't... Those are people in the background, but they're dependable. The Marines have a, a, a motto, and we've got Marines in this church. You can pick them out because they never stop being Marines. You can retire from the Army, but you can't stop being a Marine. And the Marines have it semper fi, semper fidelis, and that simply means always faithful because this is what Marines give a promise to each other. We will never leave someone behind. We will not leave that battlefield till we take everybody home. Even if you are dead on the battlefield, you will not be left behind. We will stand by. You can count on us. No one left behind. The third thing that describes the kind of person we need to have around us that tie and body. We need people who will share with us what is really going on. We need people who will share with us what is really going on. We find that twice in this chapter 4. He says, so that he, you may know what is going on. Verse 9, very similar. He and Onesimus, they will tell you about everything here. Now let me tell you what amazes me that's absent from these four chapters. He does mention earlier in chapter 4 that he's in chains. That's the only mention to the fact that he's a prisoner. But he doesn't talk about himself at all. I love the unselfishness of this letter. He said, this is about you. This is about the gospel. But I don't want to make it about me. Now, I want to tell you something. Let me tell you what he'd gone through. When he delivered that love offering to the Jews in Jerusalem, they lied about him, tried to cause a riot so the mob would kill him. He got arrested. Then they just had a plot to kill him on the way from jail to trial. So he got snuck off at night to Caesarea. He spent two years under a corrupt governor who, the fact is, the, the man that arrested him sent this letter with him. There is no reason that he should be in prison or be put to death. In other words, he said, let this man go. But the guy was corrupt, and for two years he waited on a bribe. And Paul would never have given a bribe, but not only that, he never had money for a bribe. And so he spent two years of his life there. Then he went on a ship that was shipwrecked, and then he got there, and he'd been two years waiting on Nero to, at a whim, say, okay, it's time to see Paul. And he didn't know when that would ever happen. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. If that had happened to me, I guarantee you two out of my four chapters would have been pity party chapters. Woe is me, I've been done wrong, and, and I can't believe all this is happening. Let's eat worms together. I, you know, you know, now, wouldn't you have done that? He doesn't even mention himself. He doesn't talk about his being treated wrongly. He doesn't talk about the fact that he's under arrest right now. It's all about the doctrine. It's all about them. And then he just casually says, they'll tell you what's going on. They'll, they'll give you an update of what's going on in my life. Because he knew, he, when you are writing a letter on parchment, you don't waste parchment on unnecessary things. So he said, they can tell you verbally what's happened to me, but I, I don't want to waste time with that. And so I'm sure they came. And probably the report they gave came from another letter that he'd written earlier during his house arrest time, which is the letter of Philippians. And he was very upbeat there. He said, I want you to know I'm getting the chance to preach to these guards. They chain to me every six hours. 
And the gospel is now penetrating Caesar's entire palace. So you find him very up. I'm sure they gave a positive message, but here's the deal. They could trust that from Ty and from Onesimus, they would get the true facts. Justin and I on Wednesday nights have been referring to a new podcast that we're listening to. It's not finished yet called Whatever Happened to First Baptist. It's about First Baptist Jacksonville, which used to be in the 90s, the best church, the greatest church in Southern Baptist life. And then it went through a huge collapse. It's now back on the way up. But they had a crisis and they had to make some tough choices. You can get the You Ask For It podcast and we'll give you updates or you can subscribe to that one. But one of his episodes was in the midst of all the changes they had no choice they had to do. He said members began to spread lies on social media. And they had to say, which ones do we respond to and which ones do we ignore? But he also went through the pain that he went through because people were saying that he said things or he did things that he didn't do. And in a day with social media, folks, it is hard to correct everything that goes out. I had a somewhat experience, not to that level. But in 2010, uh, I had a serious heart attack. I fell dead in the bathroom. They didn't know how long I was dead, so they actually brought a neurologist in later to see if I was brain damaged. I was in a coma from Tuesday to Friday. I was 13 days in the hospital. If any of you know anything about heart attacks, that's much longer than people normally stay because my damage was that extensive. And when I was finally let out, I could barely walk from the car to the house. I was so weak. So while we were there, as a pastor, the one thing I've always feared about being in the hospital was every member of the church will want to come and check on their pastor. I was hanging on to life. So we arranged with the hospital there would be no visits. Only my wife, children, and my executive pastor down at Opelika could come to see me. We asked, my executive pastor said, you come anytime you want, but please tell the church we don't want anybody coming to our house. About three weeks after that, we'd been home about a week, my executive pastor came to see me and said, this is the rumor that's being spread throughout the whole church. That because nobody has seen you and because you won't let anybody see you, that you must have suffered irreparable brain damage and will never be the same. And that you're trying to hide that. And that's the reason why you've not been seen and you don't have visitors. Well, Deacon's meeting was just a day or so after that. I had my wife drive me and I could barely walk to the Deacon's meeting. And I walked in and said, here I am. Do you have any questions? Because I had to show them that I still had my mind and I was still alive. And frankly, I was ticked. <laughs> All because someone was spreading something that wasn't true. We need to make sure that we have people who are saying what is actually true. And then number four. Number four. We need people who are encouragers. We need people who are encouragers. He's ties described in chapter 4 verse 8 so that he may encourage your hearts. Almost everyone walks through this life with times where you feel like a fraud or you feel like a failure. And I think part of that is because that's Satan's work. He is the one, the evil one, who tries to tell you that you're worthless, to tell you that you're a failure. He's the liar, remember? And so we need people around us who will tell us God's truth about us and also point out 
that, that here's Satan bringing the focus on the wrong things. There's some things that you need to focus on. And so discouragement is a temptation that all of us face and staying in it can be costly to us. So we need encouragers. My son-in-law is now a pastor across the street from the stadium where the University of Alabama plays. The president of Alabama goes to his church. I am now, Nathan, an Alabama fan. And they need prayer. <laughs> After yesterday's game, they need prayer. <laughs> But they have been a powerhouse, had Heisman Trophy winners, great quarterbacks. One of their great quarterbacks was a young man who was put in the game as a freshman, and he won a championship for him, Tua, and you can Google his last name. Starts with a T. Uh, he went on, won the Heisman Trophy one year. He, he uh, was, excuse me, he came in second in Heisman Trophy voting one year. He, when he graduated, he was the fifth overall draft in the NFL. Uh, the Miami Dolphins drafted him, and he was touted as the future of the Miami Dolphins. And that first year, it is rough for a quarterback who's a rookie to really do well in the NFL the first year. And he had a very rough year, made a lot of mistakes. And the press and the fans of Miami we're saying this is another bust, another big draft pick that will turn out to be a bust. And he began to believe that. He began to believe that it had all been a sham. He was not talented. The next year, they got a new coach, Mike McDaniel. And when he was spending time with his quarterback, he could sense how low he was. So he put together an 800-play highlight reel of all the great moves that Tua had made that first year. He's come to my office. you got to see this. And he sat him down and showed him extraordinary things he did that rookie year. Extraordinary. 800 extraordinary plays. And he said, my job is to get all the greatness out of you. And Tua responded this way. I think anyone here can attest to someone believing in them and how that changes how they see themselves, but also the things around them. Tua was already a Christian, but he needed encouragement, and he got that from his coach. Now, can I just give you this application here? You need people around you. Can I tell you how that applies? You need a church. You need a church. God doesn't mean for us to be lone rangers. I teach church history at Fruitland. Last week was my biography week. I assigned great Christians to my students. One of those that I assigned was John Stott. Almost all the great Christians I give them that I've known for years, they've never heard of. John Stott was one of the greatest Christians of the 1900s. Billy Graham had him in 1974 lead a conference where he brought in the greatest Christian leaders from all over the world to a town called Lausanne, Switzerland. And they came up with the Lausanne Statement on evangelism, and what was unique about this statement. Now, there have been others written by people like Bill Bright, Campus Crusade, folks like that, but John Stott was a pastor, and he made this very clear. When we're talking about winning people to Christ, the job is not done until not only have they been saved and baptized, but they're involved in a local church. So he tied together being in the church with our task of evangelism. We don't stop until they're in a church till they have people standing by them and they're standing by others. The other application I would give is this. When you've heard these characteristics of those who stand by others, 
Are we the kind of church that stands by people like Ty is described? May God help us be that. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray you'll use this message and encourage your people. Raise us up to be what we ought to be to each other. I pray for that. I plead for that, Lord. May we always be the ones who are there for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.